Welcome to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Krokmalden. Together, we'll explore the art of turning tiny seeds into a thriving microgreens empire, sharing insights, coveted secrets, and strategic wisdom from building one of Canada's largest microgreens farms. Stay tuned for thought-provoking conversations with leading figures in the world of microgreens. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we have Aaron Verratti from High Mowing Organic Seeds. On this episode, we're doing a deep dive on everything seed related. We're going to be talking about the importance of seed quality and how high mowing takes the guesswork out for growers in providing consistent quality and supply in seed, the optimal conditions to store seed, and a really great resource for both outdoor and indoor farmers on production issues. I learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you do as well. Let's get right into it. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and hear more about high mowing organic seeds. Uh, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd love to hear how you first got interested in farming and some of the backstory behind high mowing organic seeds. Yeah, well, I did not grow up farming. Um, in college, I toyed around with the idea of a couple different professions, but realized uh, I wanted to do something where I would never question, like, is this really worth it? Does the world need this? Is this worth my time? And, you know, food is quite important um, to one's survival. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's really fun. It's challenging in different ways. It's outside. Um, so yeah, I started in college and have been working in ag ever since. Um, and yeah, hi, mowing. This is our 29th season wow. started uh, by a man named Tom Stearns in his big garden and a garage and just kind of slowly grew into the company we are today, selling seeds all over the continent. Um, wow. And really, I'm, I believe he started because, you know, Tom wanted to make a positive impact in the world. Uh, he saw there was a lot of work to do and do it through agriculture, much like me, and also with the belief that organic farming should be founded on organic seeds. So, you know, our mission, I mean, my mission in my farming career and high moments mission is just to get as much organic seed out into the fields of organic farmers as we can. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that even if you are an organic farm, you're not necessarily required to use organic seed. Like if you can't find the variety or something like that. So the more organic seed that's available, the more people can actually grow organic seed. And there's so many benefits to that for the land, for uh, the actual quality of the seed. Um, and I'm excited to, to dive uh, into that with you. Uh, I'd love to hear more about kind of your farming background. I, I remember I looked up before the podcast that you had your own farm. You worked as a farm manager. I'd love to hear more about your experience with that. Yeah. Um, so I started a market farm um, after some apprenticeships after college doing you know, a lot of the same stuff that a lot of the farmers I work with now are doing. Uh, mixed fresh vegetables for farmers markets, CSA, direct to retail, um, and some seed crops as well. Uh, more and more seed crops as the years went on. Had my own farm down in Olympia, Washington. Uh, for about five years and then spent the next four or so years managing a farmer training program uh, up on Whidbey Island in Washington oh, cool. State. Yeah. The Organic Farm School, which uh, already had a pretty strong seed saving component. And so, yeah, I spent four years uh, trying to teach folks the ins and outs of farming 
And yeah, like I said, just, I mean, seeds were always my passion since college. I was fortunate enough to have um, Dr. John Navazio as my professor, um, who, for those of you who know, he's one of the foremost organic vegetable breeders um, on the continent. And so he kind of kindled that passion in me then. And yeah, over the years, just more and more seed work. And then the opportunity to work at High Mowing came up and it was the right time. And I went for it and I'm glad I did. Awesome. So how long have you been with High Mowing? Yeah, I've been on the payroll a little over three years, but I've worked with High Mowing for a decade or more growing wow. seeds on contract for them, um, in addition to a bunch of other companies. Uh, oh, so yeah, really I had cool. a pretty decent idea of like what the mission and operation of the company was before like officially coming on board as an employee. Yeah, no, for sure. That, 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 what a great way to transition. Like you're selling, you're selling the comp, the seed company seeds, and then now you're, uh, representing the seed company. So like, it's like a full circle of understanding the production cycle, uh, to, uh, which, which makes it probably a much, much easier job for you to, um, you know, help out farmers when they're having issues and, and, you know, uh, try to dial in, um, you know, if the seeds are the issues or something else. Um, so what on a, on a kind of daily or weekly basis, what, what is your role at, at high mowing? Yeah, well, you kind of, uh, previewed it there. I do. So my primary role is commercial grower sales representative. So I'm working with farmers all over, uh, Canada and California. That's the, the ground I cover, um, helping them you know, like making variety recommendations, um, shipping questions and logistics. Um, a lot of it, and one of my favorite parts of the job is technical assistance. Folks call in with issues that happen, whether it's like disease or pests or you know, cultural practices, crop planning, um, and, you know, talking the nuances of that and trying to help them figure that out. Um, much like, I mean, as much as we can, act like an extension service from universities down here in the States. We try, I mean, we're here to help with whatever we can. You know, I farmed in the past. All my colleagues have farmed at some point in their lives. We've got a pretty big collective knowledge base. So yeah, that's the one part. And then the other part of my job is uh, organizing the contract seed productions of folks who are growing some of the seeds that we're then selling. So yeah, my previous uh, experience growing seeds for companies is proving, um, pretty useful in this role too. Yeah. So, um, and right now I'm pretty busy with that. People are sending in their germination samples and we're talking, you know, cleaning recommendations, um, and when to ship the final lots and all that. So, um, yeah, those are my two main roles here. Okay. So I guess you kind of have two busy seasons then you have the, the spring, which is when a lot of people buy seed, but then you have probably the fall, which is when a lot of seed is being harvested is being checked on what, what seeds you're going to buy, what the quality is kind of working with the farms, like you said. So I just assumed in my head that it was just one busy season, which is the spring, but it sounds like there there's this time of year is also quite busy for you. Yeah. And they kind of overlap and it's taken me a few years to get used to the the inverse of the seasonal workload because in farming you know it's pretty chill in the winter for the most part and then in the summer it really ramps up but the seed yeah. business is kind of the inverse where yeah the busy season starts pretty much now um and primarily in the contracting stuff at the moment like pretty busy organizing the incoming crops um but then the contracting cycle starts up again in december where we start to figure out what we need and how much for next season too. 
Um, yeah. So that's coinciding with the busy sales season. And then, yeah, both of them kind of taper off in the summer. So it is, it is nice to have relatively leisurely summers. I will say there's a lot yeah. of things I miss about farming, um, but it's nice to have a reprieve from a jam packed summer. Yeah, for sure. It's nice to just have the, the seasonality so that whether it's like, for me, I would prefer personally summer because that's when the weather's the best and you could be outside the most mm -hmm. and I'd rather work in the winter, but that might just be my personal preference. But, uh, with microgreens in particular, there, there, you know, there is some seasonality, but definitely not as much as, uh, field farming. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious on how many different farms you source seed from, cause it sounds like you have quite a few different contracts going, um, and then where, where that seed mostly comes from. Yeah, we've got two primary channels that we acquire seed through. One are from vendors and the other would be from contracts. So from vendors, those are sometimes individuals, sometimes companies that either breed and or produce the seed crops. And then they essentially have like their own catalog that they um, distribute. Um, so I'd say about two thirds of the varieties we offer, we just buy off the shelf, as we say, from those breeder producer companies. Um, and then the other third is the, the crops that we contract from farmers around the continent. Most of them in the Western part of the, of the continent, just because of the, um, reliably dry summers for a lot of the dry seeded crops, but we've got some, some Midwest, um, and the Canadian producer or two. That's great. Yeah. I, the, the weather out West is just, that's so much more consistent in the summer. Um, you just know it's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna rain for quite a long period of time. So it just, it, it you know, obviously I can imagine harvesting wet seed is just gotta be very difficult for, for seed farmers. I know high mowing does some, uh, breeding and or seed cultivation in Vermont. Um, is that specific to breeding or is there actual also like seed being sold from those, those, those programs, uh, like being grown in Vermont and then sold, uh, from, from being grown there? Yeah, we used to do both breeding and seed production in Vermont, but, um, strategically we kind of pared down to just focus on our primary mission, like contract and distribute seeds well. You know, like kind of narrow our focus so that we can get really good at doing that. Um, so yeah, we've got a few uh, varieties that we that did come from our breeding program in the past that are still um, quite productive for folks. I don't think any of them are offered as microgreens. Yeah, yeah, no, because the the way I actually found out about high mowing is I I, I didn't start as a microgreens farmer. Um, I started as a, a field farmer for about a year and a half, uh, just very small scale, like very hobby level, just trying to learn um, at an urban farm in, in Toronto. Um, and the farm manager at the time was like high mowing. They have really good quality seed. And same thing with the, the guy below him. He was like the, the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, farmer. Um, and then all, all my experiences have been fantastic with, with the quality. I, I don't think I even remember once out of, you know, we at Living Earth, we bought a lot of seed uh, over the years. Um, ever having an issue with, with high mowing seeds, which is so important for, for microgreens, but even for field farming, because, you know, you plant a carrot and you're expecting a, you know, a certain vigor in, in, in the seed growth, and it doesn't meet those expectations. You know, the, the weather can really have a big impact on, 
like it can exacerbate weather issues because it, the, the plant can't get a good start because it doesn't have the energy in, in the seeds. So for, for microgreens in particular, but even for field farming, like the quality of seed is so, so important. And I think it, often in the microgreens industry, it's, it's not like people are always trying to find, you know, how can I save money on, on seed and, and buy the least expensive seed. But what I've learned is the least expensive seed is the least expensive for a reason. And you're probably going to have more issues than uh, solutions by saving uh, a relatively small amount of your, you know, annual budget um, on production, uh, and, and it, it'll cost a lot more than it, than it saves. That, that's what I learned, and, and that's why you know I, I love what you guys are doing, and the quality of the seed is is so so important. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for saying so. I'm happy to hear it. Yeah, um, no, we great. Yeah, another part of what I do though. Oh, we do the best we can, but we're not perfect. So when things do uh, go sideways for whatever reason, whether it's a seed quality issue, purity, whatever, um, I encourage folks like contact us immediately with what's going on. Cause the sooner we know about it, the sooner we might be able to help remedy the situation. Um, yeah. And hearing, I mean, that's how we hear, that's how we find out about a lot of the suboptimal issues out there is from growers. And when people, uh, let us know about funky stuff that's going on on their farms. It then enables us to fix those problems and make our system even stronger, which then benefits everybody down the line too. So, um, yeah, we try to do a really good job, but we recognize that we, we can do a better job with the help of all the folks growing our seeds. So like it is a system and we're all kind of in it together in a way. So. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, yeah no, that makes perfect sense. Maybe my uh, opinion has been skewed because we, obviously we don't grow, you know, 50 different varieties uh, of microgreens. Um, but yeah, it's good. To, it's good to know for, for farms that ever do have issues um, that it, it's best to reach out because I like your customer service is great. So I know that if a customer had seed that was suboptimal, uh, you guys would would make sure that that's that's taken care of. Uh, where in, in my experience, other seed companies I've had in the past, they didn't really uh, think it was the seed or, you know, and it, it became difficult to deal with um, some seed companies. Um, but my experience with you guys has been, it's always been super, super easy. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that's great that, that, uh, that you guys want to learn too, what's not working and make sure to fix that. And then that makes it better for everyone. So, cause it realistically, if one farmer has a problem, probably other far other farmers have the problem too. So giving that information back to you guys allows, uh, less issues to come up in the future, which is great. Yeah. I mean, there's so many factors in farming, like it's hard to isolate like what the culprit is in any challenge, but I mean, that's part of what we do here too. Like we'll talk through all the factors, like, you know, how do you seed them? Like, what's the humidity like, you know, all the, the ins and outs. So, and that's a really fun part of the job too. And hopefully yeah. it's helping folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love how much you, you're, you're enjoying the work you're doing because I think that's, that's so important. And, and, you know, I can tell you found your passion with, uh, with this and it's, it's just great to, um, to have people like you on farmer sides to, you know, diagnose problems and take the, you know, many years of experience you've had farming and, and seed cultivation and bring that, uh, to other farms, uh, in terms of, so microgreens is, I think it seems to be a part of your business, but obviously it's not the whole part. So how would kind of your customer breakdown between gardeners and farmers look like, and then between field crops and then microgreen 
uh, seeds as, I don't know, maybe percentages or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Commercial growers, uh, AKA farmers, they're about 60% of our total sales. Um, and those are folks who identify like on their web account as commercial growers. So they're about 60 home gardeners are probably about 30. And that either goes through website sales, um, and our seed rack program, because we've got quite a few seed racks across the continent, like in garden centers and co-ops and such. Um, and then the rest, we probably sell to other seed companies. Um, and yeah, it's a good point to make. Like there's the organic seed world is a pretty friendly place. Like we're all trying to do the same thing, which sometimes can seem like competition, but I've really found it's not like we're selling and buying seeds from other companies. They're doing the same. Um, sharing genetics. Um, so it's a pretty collaborative spirit. Most companies have, but yeah, another like 10 to 15% of our sales probably go to other seed companies. And then yeah, in terms of like microgreen sales as a percentage of that, um, commercial grower sales, I would venture anywhere from like seven to 10%, maybe I've not had time to crunch the numbers on that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would guess it's in that range, at least by, um, by total sales, like the amount of customers might not be that high, but, uh, as you and a lot of your listeners probably know, microgreen growers go through a disproportionate amount of seed <laughs> compared to, yeah. uh, row crop farmers. So yeah, I would, that'd be my guess. For sure. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. So have you found that? the microgreens segment has kind of grown for you guys. Um, cause, cause originally like when I, when I started buying seeds from you, which was 2012, I believe, um, there wasn't a whole lot of variety in the microgreens you did offer. And in the last, especially the last couple of years, there's been, uh, uh what seems from what I can see, uh, a much bigger variety and, uh, a much more competitive price landscape for uh, the organic microgreen seeds that you guys offer. Um, has that been like a strategy that you guys have taken or is it just kind of come naturally? Um, I think it's both. Like we noticed there's a big demand for more varieties of microgreens and not just more varieties, but a more consistent supply. Um, so I did count in our new, our 2024 catalog, we offer 29 varieties of microgreens. Um, and so, yeah, the amount of varieties we're offering is slowly increasing. And I think the, I mean, at least for the, the regions that I cover, the amount of customers and seed going out to folks is increasing as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and then what, what would you say are the more popular out of those 29, obviously there's a few that are new that wouldn't have much information on yet, but out, out of the ones that you did sell in the last few years, what would you say are the most popular varieties that, uh, that you sell from microgreens growers. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, a lot of arugula microgreens, uh, red Russian kale, uh, broccoli is a pretty big seller. And then we've got a few mixes that sell pretty well. In addition, uh, our spicy mix is a mix of, uh, mustards and Asian greens. Prism mix is a like very colorful blend of, you know, different mustards and Asian greens of various colors um and then our mild mix does pretty well also 
just kind of the the milder flavored, uh, you know, tatsoys, bok choys, mizunas, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they're they're really beautiful. The 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 different mixes. If you if anyone goes to High Mowing's website, you can see pictures of of the mixes. They've done a really good job of selecting uh, varieties that that really pair well together in terms of speed of growth, but also coloring. Um, so mm-hmm. for anyone interested in buying a pre-mixed, uh, microgreen seed that, that will have uniform growth. Um, yeah, those, those three options are, are, are fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah I've seen, I've seen where like we created our own mixes, um, and, uh, uh, just because we wanted to find things that would grow as fast as possible. Um, uh, but I, I see a lot of, of mixes being sold that have things that are just not in a, like the, the, the time of growth is not well aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then, and then it just becomes like, you have like these really short crops with tall crops and it just becomes difficult to, to manage the, um, the, the height of the stems and, and, and the yield and that sort of thing. Um, so the mixes you have are, are great for that. Cause they're just, they're kind of like plug and play. You just throw the seed down and, and you know, you'll get uh, a uniform uniform crop with those mixes, which is great. Thanks. Yeah, we do. uh, Whenever we make a new mix or sometimes we'll have to substitute uh, one variety for another because it's not available in the mix. And we do trial everything like in the mix to make sure, yeah, that growth rate is even because, yeah, it's important. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's super important. Uh, it's it's hard to realize until you actually grow an uneven crop how important that is. For example, if you're using like a mechanical harvester, it, it, it's almost like you're cutting two crops in one, and then it gets very difficult to have a really nice looking even product because it, it'll just look like a subpar quality microgreen instead of what most growers should be after, which is something that's very uniform, um, good leaf size, uh, relatively even between the different crops in the mm-hmm. in the mix. Um, so I, I'd love to get into more of the production of the seeds, um, and, and kind of get your, get your take on a few things. So what, what do you, what do you think are the key factors to consider when, um, choosing what seeds to sell for, for microgreen varieties? From the seed company perspective? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have, um, place primary importance on a consistent, reliable, high quality supply. Um, Cause there's, there have been some varieties a little more obscure that we thought oh, it could be cool to add. Um, people might like it, but we aren't certain of a longer term supply. And so like, that's one of the main things we look at. Cause we really don't want folks to, you know, find this variety that really works for them. They get it dialed in in their system. They love it and rely on it for, you know, a year or more, and then it's just gone and they have to find something new. And it seems like um, there can be a big difference between um, varieties and how they perform in a microgreen setting. And so, yeah, that's really the main thing. Like, is it high quality? Can we bring in enough of it to get the price to a point where it is lucrative for microgreen growers to grow? Um, but can we also sell through it fast enough so that we can preserve the quality? You know, because we, we don't yeah. want to, uh, as with microgreen growers or farmers of all types, you might be able to get a good deal on some seed, but if it's going to take you seven years to go through it, you're not going to be utilizing the full value of that. 
Yeah, um, no, for sure. That, that, that's, that's a really great point. I think, I think from, you know, my perspective, I, I, as, as a, as a grower, I don't often think about like, you know, the supply side of like, cause you like, you're right. You, you really don't want to learn to grow a specific variety, get demand for it. And then all of a sudden you can't get the seed because there, it was a limited supply or something that you were able to get once or, you know, it, it, and just not, not be able to grow it again. Cause it's, it's, it's work, right? It's, it's a whole process to, to create a new product. And then there's even things like that, things like from the grower perspective, like creating a, a retail label that can be quite expensive uh, to, to, to get the whole labeling press manufacturing done with your, with your label supplier, um, just to have the product um, not be available. And this, this happened to us early on. It was, it was a lesson learned. Uh, that there was a variety that we could get organic and then we couldn't, and then we couldn't sell the product uh, as organic anymore because we couldn't get the seeds. I think that's important to be able to have that consistent supply along with obviously the quality. So that's a great point that as a grower, I don't often think about, but it's, it's very important um, to, to consider when, when uh, what, what, with what seed company you buy from, but also what seeds you're buying, if it's something that will be available. So in, in terms of quality, what, what do you think, like what, what makes a seed viable or, or, or of high quality to sell at high mowing in terms of germination rate and any other factors that would go into uh, the decision to, to carry a, a specific lot of seed? Yeah, I mean, the first is it has to be certified organic. Everything we sell is certified organic. Um, the other standards we have, uh, it's got to be 99.5% pure. Um, meaning 99.5% seeds, uh, usually it's less. I mean, less of, less than 0.5% of other stuff. Um, and then, yeah, it's got to meet our germination requirements. Uh, we have an in-house germination and quality control lab uh, that we do most of our tests in. We do utilize outside labs um, for certain testing techniques when we need to. But yeah, we germinate, we germ test everything in our lab. Um, there's a federal minimum and it's crop specific, um, but our minimums are generally five to 10 points higher than that. And we, it's very rare where we will go below our minimum. It'll still meet the federal minimum. Um, but if we decide like we really, we would rather have growers have access to this variety at a slightly lower germ rate than our standards. Um, We'll do that. What What is the range of the of the federal um, germination minimums? Because I yeah, guess it's it varies crop. by crop. So, like some flowers are 70 percent. Wow. Um, most things aren't any higher than eighty. Um, mm -hmm. At the federal level. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So 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 then yours is generally. Like eight, like minimums are like 85, 90, that, like for different crops generally? Yeah. Yeah. So brassicas, we, yeah, really try for 85 or 90. Um, some of the, like, kinopodes, like chard, 85 is what we go for, I think, whereas 70 is the federal minimum. Um, but a lot of the time, the seed, like, that, that's the minimum. So most of the time, from what I've seen, it's like, you know, 95, 98, like, especially things like brass because there's certain crops mm -hmm. i find that are just really strong germinators and there's not a lot of hard seed uh, which for those that don't know hard seed is seed that won't 
that won't germinate. It's still viable, but it just won't germinate on the first round of environmental mm -hmm. conditions that would be suitable to, to grow. And it's just a survival mechanism for for the the seeds to not be wiped out if there was some sort of uh, uh, environmental event like a, a, a really late frost or something like that that the genetics get passed on. Um, yeah. So do you, do you find hard seed is, is a common issue with, with germination when, when you're getting seed lots? Not, not with microgreens. There's some flowers that are quite finicky, um, in that way. And sometimes, uh, beta vulgaris species like beets and chard will be, will have some dormancy issues, but much, much less so. Interesting. Um, yeah, so we, yeah, we germ test everything, but there's also like a, a deadline for that germination too. Um, like for example, I think arugula will seed the test and we count it after, I believe it's seven days. So like there may be seeds that are germinating day eight, day 10, but we don't count them because we, you know, want things to germinate vigorously. Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 I guess that, that time frame on when you check it would be different depending on the speed of that seed's germination totally yeah so yeah. like most brassicas are probably in the like seven to nine day range chards are probably more in like the 10 to 12 um yeah because you know different species germinate at different rates yeah and then in terms of temperature is is it when you do that that kind of testing is it different for different crops do you set the temperature at what is ideal for that crop or do you put it under conditions that would be less than ideal to see what happens? I believe they germinate with rare exceptions, everything at the same temperature. Like they've got a little germ chamber that they set uh, to be quite cozy um, at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Which is for microgreens production is sometimes on the low end, but I know for, you know, field production, when you're putting mm -hmm. stuff out, when it's, you know, the soil is 55, 60, um, that's a whole different story. But with microgreens, it's so consistent that you're usually germinating at the ideal temperatures, yeah. which, you know, somewhere between 70, 70 and 80. Uh, one thing I've, I've personally noticed with microgreens, um, specifically sunflower is the outdoor growing conditions have a really strong impact on the germination rate, vigor, seed hull coming, like the seed hulls coming off. So um, I, I wonder what your experience is with like environmental factors as the seeds are being produced in the field and how that relates to um, the quality of the seed coming out in your germination tests and things like that. Is there is there some sort of correlation between the two? I imagine there would be, yes. And the sunflower shoots do seem to be more variable lot to lot, uh, which is why when we find a lot that uh, works for us and we hear from growers works well for them, we try to get as much as we can of it. Because, um, yeah, like you say, like the, the shells coming off can be a problem. Um, for the sunflower specifically, that is something we buy from a vendor. Um, and we don't have any relationship with the person actually growing the seed in the field. So I couldn't speak to that specifically. Um, but some of the crops we offer as microgreens do come on contract. Um, and yeah, if we're seeing something a little unusual or suspicious in the QC stage, we can reach out to the grower and see, you know, like some of these seeds, like they're not germinating or they're kind of slow and maybe it rained like a couple weeks before harvest and like maybe that, 
was somewhat detrimental to them. I mean, yeah, the seeds are only going to be as strong as the growing conditions were favorable. Um, yeah. In the reproductive stage. For sure. Yeah. I, I learned this lesson, uh, the hard way very early in my gardening career. I, I pretty much didn't know, I didn't know anything at that time. I was, I was just a teenager. Um, I grew tomatoes in the same soil with very little amendments for seven years. The first four or five years, totally fine. Uh, there was enough reserve in the soil, you know, the, the soil in, in Southern Ontario is generally quite good. It's a, uh, you know, like a, a nice, uh, a nice light clay soil generally, um, and uh, lots of nutrition in it. And, but by year six and seven, I remember the tomatoes were smaller and, and the seeds that I saved just didn't grow very well. And it was just a, a very interesting phenomenon to learn for the first time is like how important the soil and the environmental conditions are for the actual seed that's that's being grown and it's something that you know as a microgreen grower you're disconnected from the, where the seeds are grown and 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 uh and harvested and, and the soil it's grown in um and it, i just thought it was very fascinating to, to see that actually happen in real life and see how important the soil quality is for uh and, and i remember that year the tomatoes also had more more disease pressure um and this was just a garden not commercial production um but just very fascinating this to see that play out in real life and, 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 and watch it happen. Um, and, and it was, it was a, you know, something that was important, I think, for me to learn about how plants will adapt to the environment and, and not be able to produce the same size of seed or the quality of seed without having the nutrients in the soil to uptake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, growing good seed is in a lot of ways, the same as growing good vegetable crops, like crop rotation concerns, fertility management, um, disease mitigation. Yeah. It's all, yeah, there's a lot of parallels and yeah, the, the quality of the crop correlates to you know, the quality of the, the management really. Yeah, for sure. Um, for, for those growers that are maybe, um, not, not as experienced, what, what would be the, the shelf life if stored, you know, just at room temperature for different varieties of, of seeds you sell as microgreens? Well, that depends on where your shelf is. Um, under optimal conditions, I mean, brassicas can store anywhere from like eight to 10 years. Wow. Um, peas might be a little less, but not that much. Um, lettuces would be a little less, herbs probably less, um, but they can last a long time. I mean, I grew a kale on contract, the stock seed, it wasn't germinating high, but it was from 1994. Wow. And that was in 2019. Wow. That's um, crazy. So yeah, storage conditions are important. And that's something that, um, like whenever someone's having an issue, whether it's with microgreen seeds or any seed, I ask them like, how have they been stored? Cause the ideal conditions are 40% humidity, dark and like around 40 degrees Fahrenheit, four degrees Celsius, if you can. Um, and so if seeds are stored like that, yeah, they can last quite a long time for you know commercial production purposes that might not be feasible. Yeah. If you had to prioritize a couple over others, I would say dark is important, but the humidity is probably more important than the temperature. Like seeds can be, you know, ambient room temperature. Um, and dry a lot easier they, than they can be cold and damp. Humidity seems to be like of those three factors, humidity, I think is the most important for seed longevity.
That's good to know. Yeah, I would have always just assumed it's temperature because um, like I, I've heard, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that people say like, oh, if you put your seeds in the freezer, they'll last indefinitely. But I don't know if the if the moisture in a freezer would affect that at that low temperature. I'm just curious on, on your thoughts on that. Yeah, I've always been slightly nervous to freeze seed um, because when you take it out of the freezer, depending on what kind of container you have it in, um, the condensation can develop on the mm. container and then contribute to some some seed loss. But um, yeah, from what all the experts say, like forty and forty, if the if your humidity and your temperature add up to less than one hundred, you're looking pretty good. So oh, okay. so like the the bulk storage room we recently built um, in the warehouse in Vermont, it is constantly kept at forty degrees Fahrenheit, forty percent humidity. And that has enabled us to bring in a lot more of a certain crop at a time um, and have a secure supply and be assured that we can store it to high quality for, for several years. And that's yeah. really been uh, a really positive development in the last couple of years, especially no. with all the um, shortages that there were a couple of years ago. Yeah. I was just about to ask about that because Luckily, we at Living Earth, we had a lot of supply chain issues, but seed generally was okay during the pandemic. So I was just going to ask you what your experience was with that. So it sounds like there was uh, supply chain issues with, with seed as well. Yeah, and it wasn't so much that there wasn't seed in the world that we wanted. It was just hard for it to get to us. Mm. Um, yeah, one spinach variety got... Stuck in a shipping container for like it was basically lost for half a year. Wow! And then it finally showed up. Um, there were some volume issues too, though. Like I feel like uh, vendors were kind of rationing what they would sell to folks just to make sure like everyone was taken care of to the best of their ability. Yeah. Um, and this would, I mean, I think this large long-term storage facility was planned before the pandemic as well, um, but it really came in useful like if because if there was more than we would typically buy available uh when we were able to we would get it because we knew we could keep it high quality and then just have it and then in some cases be able to sell it to other seed companies as well yeah that's true yeah yeah i, I love the idea of the collaboration when i started the farm i was very like very competition focused and then as I got more experience in business, I realized what you learn in school, you know, I went to business school, what you learn in school and what is reality is, is very different. And I feel that collaboration is almost always going to benefit both parties. Whereas if you view, you know, other seed companies or, or, or you know, in my case, other farms as competition, then it, it you know, it, it becomes very difficult to um, see the world accurately. And, um, you know, it, it just, in my, in my experience, like collaboration is just such a great thing. Um, like the best thing is just create win-win situations. So if you guys can get more seed from the vendors and be able to supply other, other seed companies that are struggling to get seed, it's getting more organic seed out there. Like you said, which is, you know, your guys' mission. And, and I totally believe in that. And, and, uh, I think I'm the same way or I've become the same way, uh, which is part of what I'm doing with, with the, with migrants consulting is just getting more accurate, valuable information out there for people um, to make better decisions, to be able to grow more healthy, nutritious food for their communities. So um, I think it's just su such an important aspect of, of uh, a mindset shift 
uh, that I feel the longer people are in business, the more that comes to fruition, it seems like. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, seed certification and testing, uh, everything has to be certified organic. So that's pretty clear cut. But in terms of like sending seed to international countries, like, like I know you sent to Canada because obviously we, we bought from you guys. So you have to get certain uh, certifications. Do you sell seed? elsewhere and do you, or, uh, other than just Canada and, and do you have, to, is, is it very time consuming to deal with the importation certificates that are needed for other countries? Yeah. So I work with farmers in Canada and to get seed over there isn't too onerous. There's a couple of hoops we sometimes have to jump through. Um, the biggest restriction is on volume going into Canada. So for small seeded crops, um, which is anything smaller than a radish, roughly. Uh, the customs regulation is uh, we can ship up to one pound of one lot without any additional certification. Um, if we want to send multiple pounds, we need, um, I think, what is generally called a blue certificate, just because the piece of paper is blue. It's, it's by like an internationally recognized lab that is screening for germination, but I believe the primary concern is for noxious weeds. Um, and most, if not all of our microgreen varieties do have a blue certificate. Um, and so, yeah, like if someone in Ontario orders five pounds of arugula microgreens, um, we can do that. They do cost $10. We charge $10 for the certificate because there's the, the labor and the cost of the tests that we need to recoup. Um, but then for larger seeded crops, like your sunflower shoots, your peas, uh, we can send up to 10 pounds at a time without a certificate, anything above 10 pounds, we can send with a certificate. Um, those are Canada's the only other country we export like finished goods to like seeds for planting. We do, we have sold seed, seed companies in Europe once or twice. Um, and that is quite a bit more rigorous of a process, I believe, but it's not, uh, something that I deal with mm -hmm. luckily. And then in terms of, uh, how, like, uh, checking for any sort of disease or, or pests on the seed, is that, is that part of the process of, of quality control is, is kind of checking if there's any sort of pests or disease on, on the seed? Yeah, definitely. So for. For some crops, like peas are a good example in the microgreen realm. Um, you know, pea weevils are omnipresent out there. Um, so we'll do a visual inspection upon receiving the lot just to see what the level is. But um, at this point, our standard operating procedure is to freeze the pea seed for, I believe it's 28 days at a specified temperature, which I wanna say it's 18 degrees Fahrenheit, but I'm not sure. Interesting. Um, anyway, there's like, <laughs> there's a, a strict protocol for what we do. So we freeze it for cold enough for long enough where it kills the pea weevils. Um, so the damaged seeds may still be in there, uh, but the weevils are dead. Um, and any seeds they affected, you know, they, that's in the, that's reflected in the germination rate. Mm -hmm. um, for all of our brassicas, we test everything for black leg and black rot. Uh, black leg is foma lingam. If you're into binomials, black cross xanthomonas compestris. Um, cause yeah, especially out here in 
uh, Northwest U.S. Those two diseases are bad news because there's so much brassica seed production out here. Um, so we yeah are very careful about making sure we're not spreading that disease. Um, and then lettuce mosaic virus as well for most of the lettuces we're testing for. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, recently, um, last five years or, or maybe even the 10, 10 years, that um, there's that downy mildew on, on basil that's just kind of kind of just taken over. Um, is there any point to test for that? Because it, it kind of spreads in the air. So is, is it usually come from seed or is it more just it's somewhere else on another type of plant and then it comes in during the growing season? Do you know much about yeah, that? Yeah, I believe it's environmental. And I think there is some debate whether downy mildew can be seedborne on spinach. But as far as I know for basil, yeah, it's just, it's in the air um, or the soil. or Yeah, it's just out in the environment. There are, there's downy mildew resistant basils out there. Um, we don't offer them as microgreens. And I know um, as, the, as the mildew evolves, it's becoming resistant um is able to evade some of these resistances on some of these varieties so wow you know it's like it's an arms race yeah so wow that's that's um, uh that's crazy yeah but yeah I, for the most part downy mildew is environmental so yeah i mean sanitizing your equipment is probably the best best precaution against that i would say yeah it, it doesn't generally for microgreens it's generally not as far as I've seen, it's not an issue. Okay. Uh, it must take longer than the the cycle that you grow it at, sure. uh, or maybe that's just my experience. I haven't I haven't heard any of that. But I just know for basil. I remember I used to, when I had that gar that farm plot when I started my career. It just it was crazy how fast it spread. It was like it, it was like the mm -hmm. pandemic, but but of a a basil uh, a virus. It, it was it was just nuts, and I've never seen a plant disease take over like that. And it's crazy because it's on the underside of the leaf, so you don't really notice it unless you look mm -hmm. under the leaf. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, if, if anyone's ever seen like kind of black, gray, fuzzy, like I, I don't even know if you call it like like mold looking, but kind of mold looking under your leaf, you probably have it. Uh, it's very common, and uh, I guess probably more in the eastern U.S. I would guess just from the humidity um, than the western, but I, I don't actually know that. Yeah, no, we get it out here too on the west coast. Okay. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Um, in terms of uh, you being a commercial grower sales rep, wh what would you say your favorite part of the of your job is on a, you know, weekly or, or monthly basis? Yeah, it's not quite monthly, but I really enjoy going around and visiting farms. Uh, that is part of my job doing farm visits. I usually make one big trip a year and then a few side trips. I love seeing the different landscapes, the different farms, how they're set up, like what their environment's like, what their markets are, their successes, their challenges. And, uh, you know, just getting to know them better. Like you can only get to know someone so good over phone calls and emails. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is, yeah, that's, that's my favorite part of the job. Yeah, I was actually just up in BC last week. Uh, for a conference, but spent a day going around the Kootenays um, oh, nice. farms. And uh, it reminded me how much I love that part of my job. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I was, I was in Boston recently and visited a couple of microgreens farms and, uh, and it got me thinking like, I, I want to, I want to go visit more farms because uh, it, it's really fun and you, and you learn a lot 
and uh, and and you yeah you form those relationships with other farmers and feel like there's a a strong camaraderie uh, between you know farmers like the it's it's something that if you've never farm commercially you don't understand the the struggles of it the same way um and it's just it's just nice to have uh more community around uh, uh farmers I, I think it's it's just beautiful and and uh very yeah it's just it's just great to have that community um what would you say is the most challenging part of your job <laughs> i was reminded of this last week as well um they're both great parts of my job, but in the winter when I at conferences a fair amount of the time, and it is also the busy season in terms of sales, it's just, it's a heavy volume of work. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's all good. You know, I can spend a day at a conference meeting folks and, you know, talking about the things we love. Um, but then I get back to the hotel and I, I still have to respond to emails. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's... Um, so yeah, it's not that bad. It's, I mean, my job is pretty sweet. I'm a, I'm a lucky person, but I mean, if, if that's the worst I've got it, then that's pretty good. That's it. Yeah. 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 You, and, and like, you know, just getting to help farms along, along their journey, I think is, is, it must be very rewarding. It, you know, it is for me and I can imagine with your experience, uh, like someone that's new to market gardening, your, your, your expertise would just be phenomenal to be able to help someone with some of the struggles that you have early on in your, in your farming journey, especially if you're in a more remote area that you don't know a lot of other farmers in the area yet. Um, someone like, like you would be a, a phenomenal resource to, to, to chat with and, and try to, to learn from and, 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 and problem solve with. Yeah, I try to be, and that's another part of the job I really do like. And it, uh, shares a lot of similarities with when I was managing that farmer training program. Um, yeah, I feel like I can be most useful to those folks just starting out and like trying to get their feet under them and figure out uh, how to approach this passion of theirs. Um, yeah. So yeah, again, just a plug. If you've got any questions about anything, please reach out. Yeah. And we'll, uh, um, uh, maybe I'll include, uh, uh, I can include your email in the, in the show notes if anyone wants to, to reach out, but you can also call you know, uh, a high mowing as well and, and uh, get a hold of Aaron or any of the, the well-experienced um, sales reps um, there. If, uh, if you, if you can go back in time uh, to a few years ago when you started working at high mowing and uh, meet that younger version of yourself, what advice would you give them uh, to set them up for success in the coming years in the, following years to come. Yeah. Um, I think it would be, you don't have to know everything now. When I started this job and would get questions from folks that I didn't know the answer to, I felt kind of bad. Like, like I wasn't doing this job I'm supposed to do. They, they called me looking for advice and I didn't know, but in the vast majority of cases, you know, they can wait a day or two. So, you know, what I'll do is kind of ask some follow-up questions, try to understand the context of their problem as much as I can, um, and then do some research that they might not have time to do in the busy farming season. Um, so whether it's my own research or, I mean, my colleagues, um, I rely a lot on them for information um, on a lot of different prop, uh, problems that farmers are having. Um, and, you know, it enables me to learn stuff I didn't know before. and uh, yeah, get back to the farmer in a few days with 
you know, sometimes it's more follow-up questions or sometimes it's, you know, theory and sometimes it's just a straight up answer. Like, I think this is it. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's a learning is a process. You can't know everything right now and that's fine. Yeah, for sure. And, and the, in my experience, the best way to learn is to, is to do. So, um, you know, just, just getting out there and, and, and growing and, and learning along the way. And then you have that experience. And then the next time something happens, whether it's a crop failure or some sort of, uh, you know, soil issue or whatever it may be, um, you're, you're better prepared. Um, and if, and if you just read a, a like, and education is, is phenomenal, but I think ed combining education with, uh, actually doing whatever it is that you're, you're trying to, to learn, um, the combination of those two is, is I think quite, quite powerful. So even whether it's starting a new job or starting a farm, um, just, just get out there and, and start growing and, and you'll, and you'll learn so, so much that that's, that's how I started farming. It was just, I just had a, a passion and I think, uh, a, a lot of people go that route as well. They don't necessarily have a full education in, in farming, um, especially now where it's, you know, um, it's something that, you know, the resources are available online to learn the basics and, and, and get started. Um, yeah. Um, so if, if listeners want to connect more, uh, connect with you or learn more about high mowing, where can they find, um, you or, uh, high mowing online and on social media? Yeah. Our website is high mowing seeds.com. And, uh, I'm not sure I can get my phone number. Is that okay? Yeah. If you, if you want to, for sure. <laughs> uh, you can reach me via phone at eight, six, six, seven, three, five, four, four, five, four extension one, six, five. Um, or just dial the number you see on our website and, and ask for me. Um, and then I do dabble in the Instagram now and then. Um, and that is Aaron underscore Verity. Awesome. Awesome. This, this has been a, a, a really insightful episode. I think I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners will appreciate uh, the perspective uh, from an organic seed company and, and all your years of experience. So thank you for coming on and, and sharing uh, all the lessons you learned and, and uh, all the information that you shared with everyone today. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. There is the few things in the world I like more than talking about seeds. So <laughs> it was a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. To access a wealth of insights, just click the subscribe button, stay notified about each new episode, and enjoy all of this wisdom for free. If you're ready to supercharge your Microgreens business, visit microgreensconsulting.com for a goldmine of guides and resources. We've transformed thousands of Microgreens businesses, and you're invited to join the success story. Let's stay connected. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at Microgreens Consulting for exclusive content and expert tips and wisdom. If you found this episode insightful, please leave us a review, spread the word, and let's share Microgreens magic with the world. Until next time, let curiosity fuel your growth and may happiness be your harvest. Happy growing, everyone.